Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask various guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they really love, but they also have to pick one thing that they rather regret, something they wish they could bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian, Twitter sensation, and most recently author, Fergus Craig, who for many years was one half of the popular double act, Colin and Fergus, with actor and writer Colin Holt, who appeared regularly on the comedy circuit and at the Edinburgh Fringe. Fergus also went to Edinburgh playing Alan Bennett in the play Pete and Dud Come Again, with two of my previous guests, playing Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, Kevin Bishop and Tom Goodman-Hill. This play transferred to London's West End. Fergus had been in several series of Channel 4's Star Stories. He won the Hackney Empire New Act of the Year for his solo stand-up in 2009 and joined the cast of the BAFTA-nominated BBC show Sorry I've Got No Head in the same year. He's been in the sitcom Popatron, CBBC's Hotel Trouble, The Amazing World of Gumball, and wrote the spoof guide, Tips for Actors. He's just published his first novel, Once Upon a Crime. I can personally recommend following Fergus on Twitter to see the very funny, detailed characters that he performs on there regularly. So, let's see what Fergus Craig will choose to put in his time capsule. Fergus Craig, you're going to tell me five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. Let's do it. The first thing I think I'm going to put in is the Bagamoyo, I think it's called the Bagamoyo Arts Festival or International Arts Festival. Bagamoyo? Bagamoyo is a town in Tanzania. Wow. No wonder I've not heard of it. Yeah, how could you not? 
I went to drama school, right, in Manchester. I went to Manchester Metropolitan, mm. which sounds shitter than it was. It's like an, <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually like quite a good drama school, but it sounds really bad, Manchester Metropolitan. Did people constantly say to you, didn't Brick Mail go to Manchester University? Yes, I mean, I think mm. a lot of places on the internet, it says that I went to Manchester University. I think that's what people assume. But yeah, that Manchester University has a sort of like quite a few people from comedy who went there. Mm. But also Manchester Metropolitan, it had um, Steve Coogan and John Thompson, they went there. But um, yeah, that's where I went to drama school. And I'd started in 1998 when I was 18. And I was quite, quite, I think I started too young because it was quite a sort of Stanislavski, methody type of drama school. Mm. And I think I thought, well, it's all about naturalism. And how that translated for me was that I didn't really do anything. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I do, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. just thought, well, it has to be real, and therefore I can't perform. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I was just too immature to get it. And then for some reason, we got offered the opportunity, some of us, to go to this arts festival in Tanzania. And all you had to do was get the money for the flight. And then you stayed in beach huts for like two pounds a night or something. <laughs> it was really doable. There was this like crazy eccentric posh guy who was the head of our course, who directed plays sort of all over the world. So we had the opportunity to do it. And we went out for five weeks to Bagamoya, which is like, I don't know, it was by car at the time. There's probably a proper road now, but it was about six hours along a bumpy road from Dar es Salaam mm. to this arts festival or to this town that we stayed in for five weeks before the festival even started with the idea that we were going to devise a play with the locals. <laughs> and we were like, <laughs> we just arrived, these young drama students from England. Yeah. And I'd never really travelled before. And that was just like, um, it was a bit of a coming of age, really. Mm. I felt like I sort of hanging out with the teachers and drinking late into the night and being in a completely different environment enabled me to sort of realise I was allowed to show off. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because it's weird, isn't it? Because naturalism, you see people in the street and you think, God, if I did that, nobody would believe him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think particularly when I was so young, you haven't met lots of weird people. So you have this idea of naturalism that it's like nothing. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Steve Coogan got that very early on. I, strangely enough, went to Metropolitan. Um, what's the full title of it? Metropolitan. Manchester Metropolitan University. That's yeah. it. Manchester Metropolitan. Yeah, the Met. <laughs> I went there to see Steve Coogan when he was a student. Did you? Yeah, I worked for Granada Television. I was sort of a talent scout. And somebody said, this is a very funny bloke you should go and see. And I went along one evening and saw him. And we offered him a contract, and he was so confident that he said, no, I don't want to be tied down. Amazing. 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 Yeah. The story was he arrived for his audition for that course as Duncan Thicket, and that <laughs> character he used yeah. to do. He just basically did his act as Duncan Thicket and then left, and they didn't even have his name. They had to, like, find him. Wow. Of course, you have to have real confidence because his characters are quite large, really. I mean, they're extreme. And yet completely believable. So when you went off to... Uh, Bagamoyo. Bagamoyo yeah. sounds a bit to me like it's in Ireland. <laughs> it does, it? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to lovely Bagamoyo. That's <laughs> it. It's a little village just below Cork. So you go to Bagamoyo, you do this six-hour drive, having never really travelled before. How was the play? What did you come up with? It was, it was insane, really. We were tied with 
It was a local sort of performing arts school, which was, I guess, for sort of middle class local locals. Mm. And then there was a sort of uh, charity put together theatre group of like basically, I don't, I don't know what the correct term is, basically like street children. Yeah. And we were all put together to devise this play. And weirdly, I don't know if you've ever worked with Colin Holt. Do you know Colin Holt? Uh, no, I don't. But you've been a partner with him on a number of things. Haven't you? I was a double in a double act with him for years. Double act with him, yeah. And this is where that started. We were in the same year in Manchester. Right. He's very funny in Afterlife. I like him in that a lot. Yeah, he is great. And mm. that's where we sort of formed our double act. And we ended up devising this play. Looking back, it was probably awful. <laughs> but the idea was that we were the co-managers of Manchester United. And we had arrived in Tanzania to Talent Scout. <laughs> and then we, we signed this player and then he went through this sort of life-changing experience. There was this huge like pantomime-style play with us as like the comedy centrepiece of it. Mm. And we were about, I don't, like, people seem to like it, but I don't know what, we were doing like very old-fashioned northern humor <laughs> it's just this sort of like Morecambe and Wise double act called Bill and Ken it like could not be more British but that's where we started and that's where our sort of double act formed so and um, maybe in fact that's the sort of thing they would watch on television I don't know maybe maybe, maybe. I remember being sat in the crowd watching some dance troupe from Zimbabwe next to these old African women and the music was on and one of them went ah Kenny G. <laughs> <laughs> you forget, of course, that our culture does spread all over the world and we do have an influence in that way. But actually, it's probably more a culture from the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. At one stage when we were there, we went for the weekend to Zanzibar mm. on a Dow. Wow. You know, That's brilliant. We were with the locals on a Dow and then we spent like two or three nights in Zanzibar and then we came back. And we had like a guide and suddenly this police officer started shouting at our guide and then started beating him oh. with a tr properly beating our guy. And we're just 19 year old white drama students from Britain. And our guide is getting proper beaten by the police. And it transpired what there was a tax that we had to pay to get out of the port. But he was trying to pass us off as like local fishermen. <laughs> <laughs> Which we could not be anything further from. No. <laughs> so, in fact, the beating was over something financial. So, I guess he paid the bribe and we got through. Yeah. So, did this change your attitude when you came back? Which year were you in when you went on this trip? It was just before we started the third year. And I right. think it sort of gave me the confidence that I was sort of allowed to show off and perform. And it started my double act with Colin. And that's sort of where everything mm. came from. In my 20s. Yeah. So, How quickly after that did you two go to Edinburgh then? So we graduated in 2001 and we didn't go to Edinburgh until 2004 because we were just sort of skint and getting our careers together. Mm. But then we got signed by Avalon and they took us up to Edinburgh and put us in. Brilliant. Serious debt. But that sort of started things. Nice. All right, well, I'll put that trip into the time capsule for you. That'll be your first item. Thank you. I'm, I'm slightly envious, I have to say, although I was never a great traveller as a young man. I, you know, going to France was enough for me. Right. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Not that I'd be able to do it now without the creature comforts, yeah. No, it's strange, isn't it, that doing this takes you all over the place, isn't it? I mean, shortly after I came out of college, 
we went on tour around Australia. Just somebody said, do you want to go to Australia? We said, yeah, okay. Yeah. And they promoted us as if we were the biggest thing in Britain. Right. And the Australians didn't bother to look it up. They just went, oh, that's great, mate, yeah. And what was it, a play or you were a comedy actor? No, it was a review. Right. Five of us doing sketches. And they said the new Monty Python we were billed as. Right. And we played enormous venues and made loads of money and had a fantastic Did time. You? Yeah. So you got audiences. Yeah, they came in their hordes. It was great. We took a play to New Zealand and we were sort of billed as that, but no one came. We were in a huge theatre, but there were like 30 people in it. <laughs> we were there in New Zealand for three weeks and did eight shows. So it's basically just a holiday in New Zealand. Lovely, yes. Yes, I've done the same, but the reason we played a theatre with no one in it was because there was a hurricane. Right. And we'd driven across the island to this place, and then we went on a radio station to publicise a show, and the people kept saying, are you sure you're doing a show, mate? And we said, yeah, yeah. He said, there's a hurricane. And I was there? Oh, sorry, we've been backstage. We didn't know. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then we played at this huge place to about 20 people. And then amazingly, a couple of years later, my wife was giving birth and a man came in to help her with forceps and big white boots on. And he looked at me and he went, hello, mate, I saw you in New Zealand. And he was at that show. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, small world. I had a Kiwi come up to me after that play and just from behind and said, pointed little pile, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's always my, my phrase, the Kiwi. Poignant little tile, isn't it? <laughs> that's a very good New Zealand accent. That's very good, yeah. All right, okay, so that's item number one. Let's move on to your second item, Fergus. Um, I'm going to go for the old shillelagh pub. Uh, finally, we get to Ireland. Well, it's in Stoke Newington, so it's not in Ireland. Oh, no. It essentially is Ireland. Yeah. I'm putting in pubs, really, but that's my favourite pub. I really, 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 love pubs perhaps like a little bit too much (laughs) i really like obviously i like being at a pub with friends Mm -hmm. i like those sort of nights that get away from you Mm -hmm. and i I really like going to a pub it took me i guess once i hit about 30 i started to enjoy going to a pub on my own yeah just reading reading private eye in a pub it's a terrifically enjoyable thing to do is that a daytime thing you know, I don't know how much I want to admit, but yeah, if I feel like I can get away from it. I discovered, a year or so ago, I discovered the pre-nursery pickup pint. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to become a thing. <laughs> yeah, just on your way to pick up my son from nursery. I think I can get away with a pint. <laughs> and they smell it on my breath. And you've got your wife saying to you... Why are you leaving now? It's only 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, she's at work. So ah, she got, has no I have to deal idea. with it myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the shillelagh like? The old shillelagh, it's... I lived in Stoke Newington for quite a while, and I was for a few years I was scared to go in there. If you look at it from its sort of facade, the front of it, there'd be some quite scary-looking regulars. But once you go... One night, me and my mate sort of dared each other to go in there. Hmm. And if you go out... To the back, it sort of opens out into a lovely pub and a garden. But to sit at the bar there is a great thing because, you know, I, I for me, a pub should have some alcoholics at the bar. Yeah. To keep it like it's true. You know, I, ideally a pub won't serve food except for crisps. <laughs> and it's got all of that. It's all of life is in the old Chalele. Hmm. And it's one of those pubs where sometimes the pub itself sort of decides tonight we are getting drunk. You know, like they will, <laughs> they'll, they'll just suddenly decide, they'll just ha- start handing you free drinks. They just decide tonight's the night. 
Yeah, come on, everyone. Yeah, they play live music there. It's the sort of pub that will have the racing on in the day. You know, it's. I, I guess I'm talking about the old Shillelagh Circus or 2010. Mm. I haven't really been there in recent years. It may have lost its charm. Well, since you left, maybe. Maybe. Maybe, and uh, so you broke its back, as it were. I was the glue that held it together, yeah. <laughs> I love that pub. I, I love pubs like that, I have to say. I like a proper pub. I, I really don't like... Well, I think I'm allowed to say I don't like Waterstone. What are they called? Um, um, Waterstone. I'm not, not a great reader. But the other one. The, Weatherspoons. Yeah. There's me. I do that with things I don't like. I drive the name from my head. <laughs> so Weatherspoons. Yeah. I'm not keen on Weatherspoons. Where I live, we've got a fantastic, beautiful old Victorian theatre with all the seating still in and the original rope for the flies and everything. And right next to it is a bar because it's owned by Weatherspoons, and I can't even go in there. I find it so painful. I think there's the odd Weatherspoons that can be okay. It's sort of, in a way, of course, it's a chain and it lacks soul and all of that. But because it's got cheap beer, it's got a self-selecting wide range of clientele. Yes. Which I quite like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so in fact, those people who sit at the bar and get drunk, you're going to find them there, aren't you? Because it's nice and cheap. Yeah. yeah. So you'll have people in there like at 10 in the morning, you'll have the alcoholics having a pint, mm-hmm. and you'll also have like people in there for the free coffee, <laughs> you know, writing their screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think the one thing that's missing from that situation always nowadays, those blokes at the bar would always be sitting there with a roll-up and their own ashtray. And now they all have to get up and stagger outside and stand at the front of the pub, putting everybody else off by smoking at the entrance. I thought I would miss it. I don't smoke, but, like, I felt like it was a fundamental part of pub culture. Mm. But now, like, come to think, I mean, I would have been in my mid-20s when the smoking ban came in. So I would have spent, like, my late teens and early 20s, or my coat would have always stank of fags. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I didn't wash my jeans very often. Anyone who went to a pub always smelled of cigarettes. Well, you certainly couldn't have got away with the pre-nursery pint. No, you wouldn't, no. Mm. But now they, a lot of those pubs, they'll just smell of farts instead. (laughs) But the problem is now, of course, they all smell of the gents' toilet, which is not good. That as well. Yeah. Have you ever had a lock-in then at the old Trilady? Uh Yeah, yeah, plenty. I mean, it's sort of, I don't know if it was a, like an official lock-in. It just sort of became one. No. So, yeah, no, it would go deep into the night at the old Trilady. Wow. Was, In the middle of London. That's impressive, I think. Yeah, I guess there was sort of an understanding that they're okay. Mm-hmm. No, it was a really, really great pub there was another mm. pub in stoke Newton, i forget what it's called but that was another irish pub where i went in there like midday with a friend to watch the football and he was drinking a pint of orange and lemonade and i thought oh that looks good i'm feeling worse for wear from the night before that looks like what i would like yeah so i went to the bar and ordered a pint of orange and lemonade and the barman said oh you want a pint of orange and lemonade is it orange and fucking lemonade all right okay <laughs> <laughs> He's making it, walking down the bar, talking to everyone, going, orange and fucking lemonade, orange and fucking... And then he gives, And I give him the money, and he gives me the change. He goes, there's 10 pence, go and buy some fucking sweets. <laughs> Brilliant. And then, the, and then the guy behind me ordered a pint of lager. He went, pint of lager, yeah? I'm back in a fucking pub. I'm back in a fucking pub. <laughs> oh, you were shamed into a Guinness, surely. Yeah, yeah, that would have been the next pint. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds my sort of pub. Yeah. I did go to a pub in Ireland and sat down and... The fellow looked at me and he said, you're a brave fellow. And I said, 
really? Is, is it not good, this pub? And he went, no, but just walk like that straight into an IRA pub. And I froze. And then he went, I'll just fucking with you. <laughs> I did have at the old Shillelagh one night some old pisshead at the bar. I think he just got sick of me and my British accent and started saying, Uptara, Uptara. Mm. The barman gave him a bit of like, no, we'll have none of that now tonight. And now this sounds like the sort of pub that my friend Paul Bradley, who lives in Stoke Newington, would go to, the actor. Yeah. Paul Bradley. Yeah. Right, yeah. Certainly to watch the rugby. No, it is a great, great pub. Lovely. The old shillelagh. I've been to some good pubs in Manchester, though, when I was up there, working up there quite a lot. I went to a pub right near Main Road, the old Main Road football ground. Yeah. And it wasn't a place where sort of actors working at Granada Television went often. No. But we would search out these sort of parts of Manchester because it was more fun. And we went into a pub and uh, we were being paid in per diems. Yeah. So we had a brown envelope yeah. with quite a lot of money in it because yeah. it used to build up. You had no time to spend it. So I remember taking this brown envelope out and peeling off a 20-pound note. And a fella came up to me and said, you don't want to do that in here, mate. Yeah. And I went, okay, fair enough. Put it away. That would have been basically Moss Side, right? That's yeah, where yeah. Main Road was. Yeah. 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 But then once I, the fella said, he's with me. We had a brilliant night, and we did get an enormous lock-in where they wouldn't let us leave. Right. And we, we were filming the next day, and we were there till four in the morning. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Fun, though. It would kill me now. Yeah. Too old. All right, we put the old Shillelagh pub into the time capsule. That's your second item. Thank you. So, Fergus, what's next? Okay, I hope you're enjoying this podcast, although I'm afraid there's going to be a short interruption while we play some adverts. I don't know which, and I don't know how many, but I hope there are some, as they pay for the making of this podcast. See you shortly. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back. Thanks for helping us with our finances. Right, let's get straight back to Fergus Craig and find out what else he put in his time capsule. I'm going to go to the King's College Hospital. Mm-hmm. Sorry, none of these are objects. I couldn't think of objects. No, that's all right. You're a placeman. Yeah, I'm a placeman, man. <laughs> yeah, King's College Hospital in Denmark Hill. Mm-hmm. That's where in 2011, my dad had a liver transplant. 
which now after talking about pubs makes me think that, that, that <laughs> it was nothing to do with that. He had a condition, mm. which meant that he had to have a liver transplant. So that obviously that was a very sort of stressful, emotional time. Yeah, it worked out fine. He's still alive. Great, but it meant that I spent quite a lot of time at that hospital and in the neighbourhood, which meant that me and my girlfriend decided to buy in Camberwell. Mm-hmm. So we still lived there, and then in 2017, that's where my son was born. Mm. But that was a very stressful week because my girlfriend had preeclampsia, and my son oh. was in intensive care there for a few days. It was just a, everything fine. Everything worked out fine for everyone mm. involved. But um, I thought if I'm going to use this as a sort of the most significant moments in my life, then uh, King's College Hospital, quite a lot of them have happened there. Yeah, they are significant moments, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, first of all, a liver transplant, that's a massive operation. Yeah. The way it worked was he was waiting for his liver for years and he lived in Cornwall. So you find out in the middle of the night that you might have a liver. Someone drove him all the way to London. I lived in London, so I was able to be there. So then he's waiting. He waits on the ward. And I guess there's one or two other people there because they have to do some tests to check that you're fit to have the operation. Mm -mm. You might not be fit. You might not be first in the queue. So you don't know what's going to happen. So I guess there's a couple of other people there who didn't get that liver that day. Mm. But he's waiting. And then suddenly the anaesthetist walked in and said, get your coat, you've pulled. (laughs) God. (laughs) And that was that. Wonderful, but terrifying at the same time. Yeah. My father-in-law had a kidney removed. And I just remember that the scarring was unbelievable. In a way, there's an irony to the fact that you've got this thing that makes you ill. But if it makes you too ill... You're too ill to have the operation. That's not fair, is it? No, yes. I mean, and now, you know, it's, it's never quite been the same. But, um, yeah, I mean, everyone, you know, we all go through these, like, huge moments. Mm. But um, it just it just occurred to me that a lot of them that happened at King's College Hospital. How old is your son now? Nursery, so what is he, three? No, he's now at school. He's just started oh, right. school a couple of weeks ago, so he's four. And how's that going? He's doing very well at school, yeah. He's into it. He doesn't want to go home, really. Eh? It's all good. He's at that age where it's, you haven't been sort of punctured yet. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're not old enough for there to be any sort of self-awareness or no status. No. So he'll just go up to anyone and just go, oh, I've got a book bag too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love that age. I've got a grandson that age. And the same thing, just they see someone playing where they would like to be playing and they just go and join in. Yeah. My name's Louis. This is my daddy. Say hi <laughs> to him. You know, it's just like that. So. Uh, it's lovely. Uh, but no problem with COVID. No. I mean, I just had it a couple of weeks ago mm. and he didn't get it off me, which makes me think he might have got it a year ago. I mean, he was in nursery for most of COVID. Yeah. He had quite a bad fever that last March when it was all kicking off. So I sort of think maybe he's had it. Right. My children and grandchildren are all going through it at the moment, having spent a year and a half avoiding it and doing everything they can to avoid it. Suddenly they can't. So my daughter has it. As as she's had it rather badly. And she's lost all her taste and smell and she's having a really shit time. But the kids went through it fine, you know. I was talking to my book editor the other day. His son had COVID, went through the isolation period, still had COVID, was coming up positive in all the tests, but they insisted he had to go back into school. He looked positive with COVID, but he had to go back into school. Meanwhile, I went to an audition and had to print out my script because they couldn't share paper. Yes. I thought, well, he's this kid who everyone knows he has COVID. 
<laughs> the rules are weird, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I've been filming and the same thing. The caution that's taken is enormous. But at the same time, my grandchildren are sitting next to people. Yeah. We're not sure he's got COVID. His sister had COVID. He's got a bit of a temperature and a cough. Yeah. But we'll wait until the result comes through. And you go, he's got COVID. Yeah. Send him home. No, they don't send them home. No. And then you've got the theatre of, like, spraying door Mm. handles or whatever. Mad. Well, King's College, well, you know, all hospitals, really, fantastic. What they've been through over the last year and a half, but certainly King's College, what a lovely hospital that is. Sure. I mean, I I did. I'd never like to go there again. But grim times, really. But, you know, it feels significant and everything worked out all right. Fantastic. Right, let's move on to number four. I'm going for an innings that I played in cricket. An innings? Yes, 26 not out. <laughs> yeah. Is that allowed? I'm, not, I'm sorry to laugh, yeah. but uh, I think that's three more than I've ever got. Right, well, there you go. Right, I mean, yeah. it's my personal best. I love sport. I really, really love sport, and yet I'm awful at it. I think I, <laughs> throughout school, primary school, secondary school, pretty much every break time and lunchtime, I play football. I think in the whole of that time, I've probably touched the ball twice. <laughs> just ran around was obsessed with sport i still love it we'll play it whenever i can and yet i really am not very good at it at all Mm. but in 2012 i found myself joining a cricket team i hadn't played since school i'd never really i'd only at school i'd only really play with a tennis ball i'd never played proper cricket but i had in my head that i was good at it yeah it looks like you should be able to do it doesn't it yeah, I thought I was a sort of medium pace bowler, but it turns out I'm just sort of the slowest as ever been. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the first game that I played for the team, I was out for a duck. Mm-hmm. And the second game I ever played for them, I got 26 not out. And I, in all subsequent innings, I think the highest score I ever got was like 15. And that was for like another eight years or whatever, another 50 games. Yeah. But this particular moment, it was a match-winning innings. For some reason, I got into the zone. I was incredibly focused. 70-something balls. It was six fours and two singles. I remember every shot. Mm. Everything just came together. I scored the winning runs with a boundary. It's, you know, it will live longer than ever. 26 not out is great, isn't it? Because you can always say, well, I was going to go and make 100. Yeah, sadly, we had to finish. Yeah, maybe. It would have taken a week, but... (laughs) Yeah, they brought on this young South African fast bowler who was terrifying, but he was so fast, I couldn't hit him. But I could block him if it was on the stumps, and, yeah, it will live long in a memory. I think about it a lot. (laughs) Every single shot from it. Yeah. Do you like cricket? I do like cricket, and I like playing cricket a lot. Actually, I'm not really sure that I'm capable of playing cricket anymore. The last time I did, the first ball that was hit went just over my head, but I tried to dive back yeah. and catch it. And I could, in my head, I knew it was a spectacular catch, and everybody was yeah. going to go, well done, old man. And, of course, I immediately pulled my calf muscle yeah. and had to limp off. Yeah. It's one of those sports you can play for quite a long time. If I'd been allowed to stand in the middle, if we batted first, I think yeah. I would have been all right because I could have gone no on almost every ball that could have been run. I would have gone no, I'm just going to wait until I hit a boundary. I played in innings. I played for sort of a bunch of actors, formed a cricket club, and a friend of mine played regularly with them. And then he said to me, you should come and play, Mike. And I said, yeah, sure, if you're low on numbers, I'll come and make up the numbers. And he said, well, come on, when did you last get a duck? 
And I didn't tell him that I'd only ever played three games of cricket, but I just said, well, I've never got a duck. Yeah. And he went, really? And so he then put me in at number three, thinking I was some sort yeah. of genius. <laughs> and I think I made, well, I did make eight, and both of those were fours. But that's because they had a very fast bowler came out, and I just went, yeah, yeah. oh, shit, <laughs> every time it came near me. And it sort of clipped the edge of the bat and ran for four. And then I was out. I think it's one of those sports where you can have these moments, no matter how awful you are, you can have these moments which make you look all right. Also, generally, the people you're playing with are not that great, hopefully. Yeah, well, there's usually a spread, right? You know, there'll be a couple of people on the team who are, in my head, I'm like, well, how could, you know, I've played against bowlers. They're probably 20 or 30 miles slower than Mm -hmm. a professional fast bowler. But in my head, it's like, how could anyone possibly bowl a cricket ball faster than that? (laughs) It must be impossible. I was all so happy that there was, at least in my head, there were one or two people on the team who were worse than me. Mm. I continued to play as long as, in my head, I was able to tell myself I was not the worst player on the team. (laughs) So have you given up? Yes, and I no longer play. So that tells its own story. (laughs) That moment arrived. Yeah. Oh, dear. My father-in-law played until he was late 50s. Right. But he was a very good cricketer and actually was a wicketkeeper as well, so quite agile. But he told me that they used to play a club that came from near Birmingham. And they would occasionally, at the beginning of the season, they would be playing cricket before the actual professionals had started playing. And every now and again, a professional would turn up for a warm-up game and play for this team. And he said that he went out to bat and a bowler came up and he looked at him and he thought, that's Curtly Ambrose. Oh, and it was. Yeah. But he said very sweetly, he just played sort of, you know, medium pace. Yeah, that's what they do, don't they? Because, I mean, that's, you are in possession of a, like a lethal weapon really if you're Kurt yeah. Ambrose you could decide to kill someone <laughs> you could make the choice could, in that moment <laughs> I've never worn a helmet just because it feels weird and I don't know how to mm. but I've scored one six playing cricket and that was about to heading straight for my head and I just sort of reflexively hooked it yeah. everyone on the field sort of said afterwards like you know if you've missed that that would have gone right between your eyes <laughs> Yes, you either fall to the ground, don't you, and go, shit! (laughs) Or you try to hit it with the bat, and you manage to get it. (laughs) Well, I think 26, not out. Yeah. The winning runs. I'm not surprised that sticks in your head. Yeah, yeah, I can remember every shot. (laughs) Brilliant. All right, Fergus, we shall put that in there. You can relive that innings anytime you like. But we have one more thing to put in, and this is something you want to get rid of from your life, something you'd rather forget. Yeah, there's obviously a myriad of choices for this. But I've gone for a particular gig that I had as a stand-up. Right. I've sort of gone in and out of stand-up over the years. But in my late 20s, when me and Colin stopped working together, I thought I'd have a go at solo stand-up. And very quickly... I went on the open mic circuit, which was sort of cheating because I already had quite a lot of experience of live performance and Mm -hmm. just not on my own. So it was sort of cheating. And I entered some competitions and I won the Hackney Empire New Act of the Year. Oh, right. Yeah. Which at the time, maybe it still is, was quite a prestigious open mic award, Mm. but it was cheating really. And then we had a... Of course, that would open up doors for you, wouldn't it? That would mean yeah. you get booked in gigs and things. Yeah, not as many as I might have hoped. But, um, 
maybe the reason that it didn't was because of what came next was that there was a gig to mark that occasion. They had a sort of best of the Hackney Empire gig mm. a couple of months later at the Hackney Empire with half of the finalists, I think. And it was hosted by Joe Brand. It was packed out at the Hackney Empire, which I don't know how many that is, but, you know, 700 or something. That's a lot. It's a big theatre. Yeah. And um, backstage, they were working out what the lineup would be. And Sean Walsh, you know, the community, I think he's been on this podcast, right? He has, yeah. Yeah, he had been runner-up in the final, and they were putting him to headline to do 20 minutes at the end. And he said, shouldn't Fergus do that because he won? <laughs> and, and they were saying, well, we were thinking maybe you might be better for that because he was a more experienced sort of club comic. And he said, well, don't you, do you want to do it, Fergus? And my own sort of hubris in my head, I thought, well, yeah, I did win. <laughs> I, I, if I say no to that, I, you know, I should do that, right? Isn't it only fair that I headline this show? But I only had, like, really, looking back on it, I only really had five minutes of material. <laughs> you know, I think I'd done a couple of tiny gigs where I'd sort of spun it out to 15 minutes or whatever. But it was just hubris. It's just, you know, every now and again, you can wing it, but sometimes you really, really, really can't. Mm, and certainly shouldn't. And certainly shouldn't. And I, I've done that a number of times in my life, just tried to wing something and really fallen flat on my face. And I did. I just, within about two or three minutes, I had used up all of my half-decent material <laughs> oh no and then that i don't remember it, i i have managed to erase most of it from my mind but the heckling started and i sort of got into a bit of a conversation with the people in the audience i felt very conscious that i had to do my 20 minutes mm. and it was just sort of 20 minutes of hell really and i've ha obviously i've had lots of awful gigs in my life but it was just that occasion it felt like it, it sort of erased my victory <laughs> It was sort of so it was so embarrassing. It felt like I really had my trousers down around my ankles. And everyone just sort of said, What? He won. <laughs> and, it, and it just got worse over the course of the week. Because then we went out afterwards. And in my head, I was like, Well, it wasn't that bad, was it? Oh. And then a series of people would come up to me and say, I thought they were really horrible to you. I can't. How are you feeling? How are you? How are you feeling? Because <laughs> you were good. Yeah. You were good. Yeah, you were good. It was just, it was. I mean, there were great moments in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was such a tough. I can't believe they did that to you. It was, <laughs> it was such a public humiliation. And then, I don't know, a few days later, I'd managed to shake it from my head. And then my friend texted me, You're on Radio 4. So I turned on Radio 4 and it was front row. And they were reviewing that gig. Oh, no. It was Simon Armitage, you know, who's now Poet Laureate. Mm. For some reason, he was like a reviewer as well. He was reviewing that gig, and they hadn't got to me yet. <laughs> and he was giving everyone rave reviews. He was like, we had Sean Walsh, and we had whoever, and whoever. And they were just fantastic. And there was Sansa, and they were all. And she said, what about the winner, Fergus Craig? And he just sort of gave a pause and said, well, he had a bad night mm. and he sort of, he described the gig and he was just, he got into a conversation with the audience. It just, I, I wouldn't want to judge him on this one night. He obviously, it just didn't work out for him. And it just, it just felt like, I mean, now I'm, if 
you know, I'm sure the nation has forgotten, but <laughs> I'm reminding them now. But it just felt like such a big moment, and it, there was no way of framing it that it hadn't. That it hadn't gone awfully. Oh my god! Now my question would be because I, I don't know. Maybe I've got a suspicious nature, but my question would be: Did Sean Walsh know that you didn't have twenty minutes? Oh, probably, yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> did he set you up for a fall? Maybe, yeah, maybe. Like, well, let's test him. Let's see. Yeah. Okay, come on, winner. Show him how good you are. Yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. I mean, of course, he absolutely stormed his part. Yeah, I've seen him do gigs in very different environments. That's what I like about Sean. He adapts his style and the way he performs to where he is. He's very good at it. Very good. No, he's amazing. He's a proper stand-up. I never really found my voice, really. I was never really... I was just sort of playing at it. You know what I mean? I, you know, mm-hmm. every now and again, I dip my toe in and I do it for a while, and I'm able to get up to a certain level because I have the sort of I can perform yeah. in front of an audience, and you know, I can on my day be funny. Mm. But to get to a certain level, you do really need like this identifiable persona mm. and this huge backlog of material, which I never had. But out of that disaster. Did you start writing as a result of that? No, I've always sort of written. You know, I was in a double act, and I've always sort of written over the years. But Have you got a book out at the moment, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a book that's out. I, I do this character on Twitter mainly, mm. where I do these videos. It's this sort of middle-class dad called Martin Fishback. And <laughs> as a joke, I said that he had given up his career at Colgate and was trying out becoming a crime writer. And then I sort of started reading out extracts from his book. And I didn't really think of any of it through about where it would go. And then it sort of took off. And then I got this book deal mm. to write the actual book. He's got this character, Detective Roger Le Carre, is his protagonist. <laughs> who I stupidly called Roger Le Carre, I really shouldn't have done, because, of course, that brought about loads of questions of, like, are we allowed to use the Le Carre name? <laughs> it turns out it's okay. But I saw the latest one that you did where you were saying you were going to become an HGV driver. It's very funny. Right, yeah. Yeah, that was Martin Fishback, who's this middle-class dad who lives in Exeter, him and his wife and his son, Marcus, who's away at Leicester de Montford University. <laughs> And, um, you know, went to Oxford and he's high up in the middle moment from mm. Colgate. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lovely detail of his life that makes you immediately know who he is. It's the fact that he's proud of having worked at Colgate. <laughs> but, yeah, the book is a full novel, but in his voice. Well, best of luck with it. Thank you. Fergus, lovely to meet you, lovely to see you, <laughs> and thank you very much for doing this for thank me. Thank you, Mike. It's been nice to talk to you. Good, I enjoyed it. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Fergus Craig. Thanks for listening. Now, if you get the chance, it really helps us if you subscribe to this podcast, then rate and maybe review the show. You can tell your friends, or maybe just your friend, I'm not judging, about it, which you can do easily if you follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and then share or retweet or like or whatever so that it comes to the attention of the people that you know that haven't come across it before, and people that I don't know so I can't tell them about it. You see, that's the wonder of social media and the internet. Let's all take part. Come along now. You can listen to or even download the full version of the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music 
if you search My Time Capsule theme on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, we'll be back very soon with more guests. So until then, I'll just say goodbye. 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 I'm leaving you, fiddle Goodbye. Oh, you don't remember that song. Hmm. Let's hope the writers don't either, because I'm not paying any royalties. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.